Good morning, Christ Central. Uh, as Daniel just said, my name is Matt Mela. I'm the REF campus minister at Duke. Uh, my wife, Bethany, and children, Vance and Elise, have been part of Christ Central since we moved to Durham a couple years ago to take over for RUF. It goes without saying, but I wish we were doing this in person. Uh, if we have not met, I would love to fix that when we do get back in person together. But I do also want to say thank you to you as a church. As Daniel mentioned, you, Christ Central, have been a tremendous and faithful partner with us in RUF to reach college students with the gospel. So thank you for your investment in the lives of these students. If you are a college student tuned in this morning, know that we're praying for you as you grieve the loss of in-person graduation, and we long to be back together with you face-to-face. -face. We're praying that that happens this fall. It's an honor to be here. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here on a Sunday morning with you. And it's a privilege for me to get to preach on a passage that is one of my favorites in all of scripture. We're in the Psalms. We're talking about how God gives us these Psalms to invite our honest cries. And we're going to look at Psalm 32 to hear how God invites us to cry out to him in the midst of the mess of our lives, our guilt and our shame. So would you listen to God's word with me from Psalm 32 to see how he would be guiding us this morning? This is Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is God's word to us. He gives us his word because he loves us and he wants us to know him and how we live in light of that. Would you pray with me as we dig into this psalm? Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would speak, that you would speak and that we would hear as your servants and Lord, that we would be transformed, that you would invite and shape in us honest cries to you of confession and would we experience the forgiveness and love and mercy that you meet us with. We pray that you would accomplish all that by your spirit, Lord. We need you, and we pray that you would show up. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was the fall of my junior year of high school, and I was at football practice. It was only my third year playing football, but I had been decently successful up until this point. I started as a freshman on the freshman team and JV as a sophomore, but I was currently behind a senior on the depth chart. I was the center, you know, the guy who snaps the ball to the quarterback. You show me another position that's guaranteed to touch the ball on every play. So much glory in being a center. But I was stuck behind a senior on the depth chart. 
But I didn't realize at this particular practice that the coaches had been discussing moving this senior to another position for the good of the team, opening up the possibility for me to actually start. So it was shocking to me when I was called into the first team huddle to run a play with the offense. I was terrified. I was so nervous that I actually missed what the play call was. Certainly not a recipe for success when you're trying to run a play in football. So basically, I snapped the ball and I did nothing. I thought it was a pass play, and so I was pass blocking. It was actually a run play that doesn't usually look good. And so the coaches called me out publicly for not knowing what I was doing. They kicked me out of the huddle, and I never got another chance that year to practice with the first team offense. Harsh, but that's oftentimes how football works. I was humiliated. I was embarrassed, and I felt like I let my team down. This happened 17 years ago, and if I still think about it, I can feel what I felt on that morning. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not out in my yard like Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite practicing football plays. I've gotten over that, but I can still think about the embarrassment, the shame that I felt of being exposed publicly as a failure. I can still think about the guilt of letting my team down. Guilt and shame. These are pervasive, prevalent things in the human experience. They are powerful, and they seem to be something that touches most everyone. I was reading an article recently by a scholar named Bill McClay. The article was called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And he says in that, in a culture like ours that has largely moved away from the idea of a God who has rules and regulations for us to follow, you would expect guilt to be on the decline. There's no longer a moral standard to live up to. But they actually have found that guilt has persisted. In some ways, it's even on the rise, especially for younger generations that are so connected with global problems around the world. And I think also in a culture that touts the human ability and responsibility to be able to address those problems, people are left feeling guilty in the face of how little they're actually able to do. This quote hit home for me. He said, whatever donation I make to a charitable organization, it can never be as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough or support medical research enough or otherwise do the things that would render me morally blameless. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation, there is an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. To be found blameless is a pipe dream. For the demands on an active conscience are literally as endless as an active imagination's ability to conjure them. Guilt seems to be a pervasive thing. Shame, too. You're probably familiar with a University of Houston researcher named Brené Brown. She had a viral TED Talk on shame a number of years ago. And she says in that talk that shame is a universal experience. The only people who don't experience shame are people who are unable, for whatever reason, to experience empathy or make meaningful human connections. Everybody else experiences shame in some capacity. Now, this is not a surprise to the God of the Bible. The Bible talks about both guilt and shame extensively. 
And as we think about psalms that invite our honest cries to the Lord, we are honestly invited to come to the Lord in our full guilt and shame. And Psalm 32 gives us the way forward in that. So we're going to look at Psalm 32 to talk about the source of our guilt and shame. We're going to talk about the silence of it, the ways we often try unhelpfully to deal with guilt and shame. And we're going to talk about the solution to guilt and shame. So the source of guilt and shame, the silence that often results from our guilt and shame, and the solution to it. Before we dig into that, I think it's helpful for us to define our terms a little bit. Because guilt and shame are related to each other, but they have differences. One writer I read, I thought, put it helpfully in saying that guilt is connected to an event. I did something bad, and therefore I feel guilty about it. Shame is connected to the person. I am bad. I don't measure up. I'm not who I'm supposed to be. And we've said, and I think human experience and psychology and sociology would attest to this, guilt and shame are pretty universal human experiences. Where do you experience guilt and shame? Maybe you resonate with that quote that I read, looking at your own performance in the midst of all of the issues around us and how little you have done. Maybe you feel guilty about the fact that this coronavirus situation hasn't impacted you as much as it's impacted other people. Maybe on a more everyday level, this morning even, you've snapped at your kids or your spouse or your roommate, and that leaves you feeling like a terrible friend or a terrible spouse. Parents who are listening, I don't know about you, but it's not an uncommon experience for me to crawl in bed at the end of a long day feeling like I was nowhere near as patient or kind or gentle with my kids as I set out to be when the morning started. Maybe you haven't been productive enough during this quarantine. You haven't learned a new skill. You haven't completed your house projects. You haven't kept up with people as well as you should have. You may be thinking there's more I can do. There's more that I can be. Maybe you have had things done to you that are difficult for you to get over. Maybe you have done those things yourself. Where do you experience guilt and shame? If they're universal experiences that most everyone has, I think it begs the question, why? What are the sources of our guilt and shame? Well, I think this is the bad news that the Bible talks about. We love to talk about the good news of Christianity, and it is really good news. But the only way it's good news is if the Bible is honest with us about the bad news. And the bad news is this, that the reason why we feel like we haven't done enough is because we haven't. We literally can't do enough. The reason why we feel like we aren't enough is because there is a standard that we were made for that we fail to live up to. You might have noticed as you looked at Psalm 32 that there was a repetition of three words in verses 1 and 2 and again in verse 5 where David here is talking about transgression and sin and iniquity. Again, like guilt and shame, these are connected words, but they have some differences, and I think it'd be helpful for us to unpack those a little bit. You can think of transgression like a crime, literally breaking the law. Well, as Jesus is talking about the law and saying things like do not murder, he actually says do not murder extends to not even hating somebody unjustly in your heart. 
We've seen that in the news in recent events, right? We experience it in ourselves, guilty as charged. Sin is more like missing a mark. There's a target that we're supposed to live up to and we fail to do it. So the Bible says that I'm supposed to love others as much as I love myself. And if I'm honest, does that really characterize who I am and how I live as a person? Iniquity is more like twisting or distorting. It's often used in the Bible to talk about the ways that the people of God would often worship things as much or more than they worshiped God himself. Let me illustrate the connection between iniquity and shame and guilt from the story that I told of my football practice experience. I wasn't humiliated because I failed on the football field. Like I said, I'm not out in my yard practicing my run blocking. The reason why I was humiliated is because I was exposed in front of people whose approval meant so much to me. I was exposed, I wanted to be the person you could count on, the person you could depend upon to deliver in a situation, and I proved myself not to be enough in that situation. You see, the issue for me is I made the approval of other people so much in my life. And I think connected to that is I lived as if I should be somebody who never fails to deliver. Oftentimes, I think we feel shame because we think we should be without limit. We should be beautiful enough. We should be smart enough. We should be successful enough. We shouldn't have any needs. We should be able to deliver in all situations. But that's not how God made us. It's a distortion of who we are as people. If you have anything other than the God who made you as your source of value and significance and worth in the world, you're distorting the reality of who God is and who he made us to be. Sin, iniquity, and transgression, they're package deals in the Bible. And I think they're describing in this psalm the totality of ways we can experience the brokenness of our relationship with God. Maybe you have experienced the sin and iniquity and transgression that has been done against you, and you have been left feeling less than valuable because of that. Maybe you have done those things and felt like you haven't measured up somewhere innately in you. The Bible would say we all experience this. We have done things we aren't supposed to do. We have failed to do things we're supposed to do, and we've twisted the whole thing and made other things more important to us than God. The Bible would say the reason, the source of our guilt and shame is that we have inherited those things from the first man and woman who ever lived. That mankind was made to obey and serve and trust God alone, to find their worth and value in being made in his image and loved by him, and Adam and Eve failed. They transgressed. They weren't supposed to eat of a fruit, and they did it anyway. They missed the mark. They were supposed to trust that God's words were good and listen to him and lead the rest of creation in trusting him. And they failed to do it. And they twisted, not trusting that it was enough to be creatures of God. They wanted to be God himself. Now, I know in our cultural moment that we live in, it's hard to believe in what sounds like a fairy tale origin story. So, Matt, you're telling me that the reality of our guilt and shame is because there were two people that ate from fruit that they weren't supposed to eat, that there was a talking snake that convinced them to do it. 
And I recognize the challenge of that, but I would also say, show me an origin story that more powerfully captures the human experience and what sociology and psychology affirm to be true. Why else would we feel, as we look at our own performance as people, so restless and so inadequate as friends, as parents, as spouses, as employees, as teammates, as students, as pastors, if there isn't a real sense in which we aren't the people we're supposed to be and we don't do the things that we are supposed to do? The Bible would say that we all have fallen short of the standard. That's the bad news. Now, I think the story of Adam and Eve is compelling not just because it captures the human experience so well in my mind, but also because it shows the ways we oftentimes, as people, try to deal with our guilt and shame. So Adam and Eve messed up and they hid from God. He found them right away. They tried to cover over the shame of their nakedness by patching together fig leaves that must have looked shoddy and pathetic. And they started blaming each other for what happened in the first place. You see, I think the story shows the often unhelpful ways we try to deal with our guilt and shame, which is also captured here in Psalm 32. I like to call it the silence of guilt and shame. So David has mentioned sin and iniquity and transgression. Well, in verse 3, he also uses the word, when I kept silent. In verse 2, he talks about deceit. Deceit here would just be a refusal to be honest about the reality. I think silence and deceit are actually connected here. Now, if you look at verse 3, it talks about both silence and groaning all day long. So we're talking literal cries of anguish and distress. So the silence can't be literal silence because he's screaming in agony. It must be silence with respect to certain things. He's refusing to be honest about the reality of his life. And this is oftentimes how we try to deal with our guilt and shame. We try to cover it up in silence. He uses that word too in verse 5. I did not cover my iniquity, which suggests that previously he was trying to cover. Same concept as Adam and Eve trying to cover over their shame with fig leaves. Guilt and shame compel us to remain in the dark, to remain silent about it. For some of us, that may be that we literally isolate ourselves from other people. That we experience ourselves as being unworthy of love for who we truly are. And so we refuse to be honest with others. We refuse to engage with others. We literally hide. For others of us, it might be that we remain silent about our mess by trying to make other things about our lives louder. Perhaps we wear a mask. We overcompensate in some ways. We try to hide our guilt and shame behind the fig leaves of a nice house or a successful career or a morally upright outward appearance or friends and a robust social life or beauty. What are ways that we might try to overcompensate for our guilt and shame by trying to prove that we're enough in other areas? I think another way we can remain silent, similarly to Adam and Eve, is we try to put our guilt and shame onto other people. I don't know about you, but this whole lockdown, quarantined life has been really confusing. 
But if you look at social media, it seems that people are so confident either that there are so many people who are not taking this seriously enough or so many people who are freaking out. This is just the flu and we need to reopen the economy ASAP. I think we look at those people and how quickly social media can move from you are doing horrible things to you are a horrible person. Maybe you don't type those things, but have you thought those things? I think oftentimes we're hiding our confusion and uncertainty and our own uncertainty about how we connect in this situation by placing that onto other people. I am struck by how quickly I can try to make myself feel better by pointing out in my head and in my heart and maybe even out loud the ways that other people aren't as good at certain things as me. This sounds a whole lot like Adam and Eve deflecting blame onto each other. Now here's what's striking. I don't think we just deal with our guilt and shame that way with other people. I think we can do this same silence of shame when it comes to how we relate with God. Do you believe that there are certain things that God wouldn't forgive you for? Certain things that you need to hide him for. So you can present to him in confession sort of the acceptable things we need to confess, but there are certain things his grace doesn't touch. Or maybe you try to overcompensate by hiding behind outward, moral, religious, upright behavior. Do you believe that God loves you more when you have a consistent streak of devotional quiet times in his word? Do you believe he loves you less when you failed as a parent or have felt anxiety and fear when presented with an opportunity to share your faith with a coworker or a neighbor? Do you experience God as a loving heavenly father who holds you in his arms? Or is God an angry, vindictive, demanding dad who you're always disappointing? The loving heavenly father who holds you in his arms is the biblical understanding of who God is. The other is not. But how oftentimes we can feel like God is asking us to perform for him. I even think that we can deflect our guilt and shame by blaming God. Sure, God, it would be easier for me to be generous if you just gave me more money. We, just as we can do with people, can treat God the same way. Hiding, being silent, covering up our guilt and shame. David is saying that there was a time in his life when he did this, and if you look, it has disastrous effects for him. He says that his bones are literally wasting away, that his strength was dried up, that in his silence, he is dying. I don't know if you can relate. You see, I think the reason why David is feeling this is because silence with regards to our mess is cutting us off from the source of life that we were made for relationship with God and relationship with other. We are hardwired for it. We need each other. And to try to remain silent or present just a mask of ourselves cuts us off from the opportunity to be in real, true relationship with God and others. I think this is where our culture's way to deal with guilt and shame is often lacking a little bit, although I'm sympathetic to the attempts. I think oftentimes we're told when you feel guilty and ashamed that you just need to throw off these old crusty standards of religion. You just need to determine right and wrong for yourself or view yourself as beautiful for who you are. I'm sympathetic to those things. 
But I think the question still remains, even if you can accept yourself, aren't you still asking, will others accept me? Will God accept me? You see, I think it's not enough to have acceptance and love declared over us by ourselves. We need it to be declared over us by another. So the solution to our guilt and shame comes in a counterintuitive way. We need to stop hiding. We need to stop being silent. And we need to get honest about our mess. The solution is confession. Stop pretending. Stop hiding behind your performance. Stop trying to overcompensate. Stop trying to blame other people and own it. We really are messes who have fallen short of who we're supposed to be. We can't possibly do enough, as that quote earlier said, to live a blameless life. And the beauty is that God invites us to be honest about that. The whole point of this psalm is David saying blessed or happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. He's saying stop trying to cover it up because when you stop doing that, God will cover it for you. Look at in verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my mess. I did not cover it. I said, I will confess and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That this is how God meets our honest confession before him with saying, I love you, I forgive you, I cherish you, you are mine. If you look in verse 4, David says that the source of his distress when he's remaining silent is God himself. He's saying, your hand was heavy upon me. You see, God is impressing upon us his hand when we try to be silent and showing us the disastrous effects of that because he's compelling us to get honest. He wants us to confess because he wants to forgive us. He wants us to be honest because he wants us to experience the freedom of being honest before him, to stop trying to cover it up ourselves. Stop trying to pretend as if we should be limitless people. That's why the main application of this entire psalm is to get on your knees and start getting honest. Look at verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Now, here's the beauty of this. David is talking about his mess, and David was no stranger to it. He killed people. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He's not saying that godly people are people who've never messed up. He's saying godly people are people who trust that when they're honest about their mess, God will meet them in forgiveness. He's saying, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. For the person who is honest, the waters will not overflow or overwhelm you. I think this has to be referring to the floodwaters of judgment. In the story of Noah, God sent floodwaters of judgment to judge the wickedness of the world. But now what he's saying is get honest and those floodwaters won't touch you. And that's because the good news of the Bible is that God has placed all the floodwaters of judgment upon Jesus instead of us. Jesus, who never did something wrong, never transgressed, he never missed the mark, he never twisted his father's will and made even his own life and safety more than God, willingly went to the cross to take on the penalty for our guilt, 
And he died the most shameful, humiliating public death to say, I'm also going to deal with your shame too. The reason why we're met with forgiveness when we confess is because Jesus has stood in our place. Verse 7 says that God is a hiding place for us. And Colossians tells us that the gospel is this, that you are hidden with Christ in God. That we are hidden in his performance, that he was enough for us. And instead of receiving the blessing for that, he took the judgment. And when he was on the cross, he said, it is finished. No more work to be done. It is enough. If you trust in me, you no longer need to work to be accepted or loved. You simply are. That's the good news of the gospel. I think when we start to get honest, really honest, we can see three things start to happen in our lives. I think one is that we can truly rest. No longer trying to prove ourselves or pay back an unpayable debt that we have. No longer trying to demonstrate that we are enough in other areas to overcompensate for the areas we don't feel smart or beautiful or successful enough. We can truly rest. I think another thing beginning to confess and view God's forgiveness over us is that we can actually be opened up to real, meaningful relationships with other people. We no longer need to compare ourselves with other people. We no longer need to pretend in front of other people. If God accepts us, then we can view our acceptance as complete. And we can also let other people be messes in front of us and say, you know what, that's why Jesus came, to deal with that. I think true confession opens up the possibility for pretending-free, judgment-free relationships with other people. Real, true community of being fully known for who we are and fully loved and accepted. And by God's grace, he will make us more of those people as we become more like him. And I think the third thing is that justice and mercy and service actually become really possible. You see, if you are engaging in justice and mercy and service of other people to assuage your own sense of guilt or to prove that you're enough, you're not actually serving other people. You're serving yourself. But if God has served you through the cross of Jesus to say that you are enough, you are actually freed to really see the people around you and not need to serve them to feel like you matter, but get to serve them. I think it opens up the real possibility of the beautiful and awkward mess of diving into real issues with people and really pointing each other back to the freedom on offer in the gospel. The good news of Psalm 32 which runs all the way throughout the whole story of the Bible is that Jesus has dealt with the source of our guilt and shame. He's taken it all upon himself and given us beauty. His resurrection tells us that there's gonna be a day where we no longer ever feel like we fall short. We experience the beauty of being completely redeemed new creations. And so he invites us to stop being silent about it 
but to get on our knees with him and others and be honest. And he invites us to trust as we engage in this solution of confession that he really is that good, really is that loving, really is that much for us that he would accept us. And I think we are invited into the reality of one of my favorite verses of all of Scripture, which happens here in Psalm 32, verse 10, where God says, steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Will you trust him that he surrounds you with his love when you are honest with your mess? May that truth and reality be so for all of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I confess uh, even now that I struggle to believe that anything I just said is true. That there's been so much probably uh, pretending that I've wanted to do even up front here. But God, I also just thank you that you invite us to cry out like a blind beggar in Mark. Son of David, have mercy on us. And even as people said, be silent, you're embarrassing yourself. Jesus said, I am calling you. What do you want me to do for you? And that you, Lord God, meet cries for mercy with forgiveness and love. Would we experience that? And would we accept your invitation to be honest and experience the joy and beauty of being fully known and fully loved? Thank you for Jesus who took it all and gave us the reward of his righteousness and counts no sin or iniquity against us. We praise him and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.